Miracy. So you have to realize that when you say, I'm tired, maybe you are tired and maybe you need a rest, but maybe you're talking yourself out of doing the hard thing that was next on your to-do list. We have to understand our own trickiness and the ways in which we're trying to make sure that we don't do the things that we secretly don't want to do. Ever felt lost in a fog of doubt, questions, and what-ifs as a new coach? Well, today we're unveiling those often ignored emotions. We're going to dive deep into some of the psychological and unseen challenges awaiting when you step into the world of coaching. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you're listening to Just Between Coaches. I run a business called The Coaches Console, and we're proud to have helped tens of thousands of coaches create profitable and thriving businesses. This is a podcast where we answer burning questions that newer coaches would love to ask a more experienced coach. Now, imagine you start your coaching practice, only to find it's not just a straight road, but a journey filled with unexpected twists and turns and hidden valleys. That's the exhilarating yet sometimes daunting life of a new coach. Today's burning question has been lingering on my mind. What's really stopping us from reaching our fullest potential in our early coaching days? Today, I've invited Dr. Eric Mizell, the world's leading creativity coach, teacher, psychotherapist. He's also the author of more than 50 books in the areas of creativity, coaching, life purpose, and mental health. He's been practicing as a coach for over 30 years. He's trained coaches for 15 years, and he presents classes, workshops, and keynotes nationally and internationally. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Melinda. It's great to be here. Lovely to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the show. And before we get into today's topic, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background with our listeners? Ooh, uh, let's see. What's the shortest story? I started out as a math and science boy. That's what I thought I would do. That stopped interesting me at some point, probably when I met girls. That was the end of math and science. I started college early at 16, was too young, flunked out, enlisted. I'm giving the long, short story. And then I got a degree in philosophy, which is what you do when you have no idea what you're doing. And I started my first novel when I was 24, and I've been writing for the last 50 years, doing lots of books. At some point, it wasn't honorable to keep writing books that weren't making money. So in my early 30s, I retooled as a California licensed marriage and family therapist, stopped believing in the mental disorder model almost instantly. Coaching didn't exist too much back then. I segued to something I called creativity consulting. And then when coaching became a word, I switched to creativity coaching, and I've been working with creative and performing artists for 30, 35, 40 years now, a long time, and uh, training coaches and continue to write in the areas of creativity. So much about the creative life interests me that I have no trouble finding the next thing to write about, whether it's creativity and addiction or creativity and depression or creativity and anxiety, all of the things that really matter to human beings who decide to self-identify as creatives. Now, when we're talking with newer coaches, because that's a lot of the folks that are in our audience. Now, today's topic, let me just say this for our listeners. Today's topic is really, you're going to hear me focus on questions around getting started as a coach and using the phrase newer coach. But I believe our conversation, we're going to explore this. I believe the conversation today is also going to be true and applicable if 
an experienced coach has been doing something for a while and they want to up-level their business model or adapt their business model or scale their business and they're going into new uncharted territories to grow and expand. But I'm going to really focus this on newer coaches. And so as a newer coach sets out, what are some of the psychological hurdles that new coaches often encounter that you've experienced when they're just getting started in claiming themselves as a coach and getting their business going? Yeah, there are several sort of top-level important ones. First is difficulty asking for what they want. They may be easy being of service or giving of themselves, but to ask their list or the people they know to announce their beginning practice, they find that to be difficult. So learning how to ask is an important one. Not feeling equipped, whether to call it imposter syndrome or just not feeling quite ready is a big one. But the biggest one is misunderstanding the enterprise. And most professions act like they are experts. They come from an expert model. A lawyer has a certain expertise. A doctor has a certain expertise. A baker has a certain expertise. I don't think coaches have that kind of expertise. They don't need that kind of expertise. They just need to feel like they can be of a little help. And if they can shift the bar to that place, I don't want to say lower the bar, but just shift the bar from, oh, I'm an expert, but I don't feel like an expert, but I'm supposed to look like an expert, but I don't feel like an expert. Let go of all that expert language and just realize that you're sitting with another human being trying to be of a little help, just as you might with a best friend. You're not expecting that you can solve everything going on in a best friend's life, but you can listen, you can make suggestions, you can commiserate, you can do one thing and another with that friend. And if you can feel that that's what coaching is about, being of a little help, it becomes much easier to accept the reality of another human being sitting across from you. You're no longer taking responsibility for that person or taking responsibility for that person's life or path. You're just trying to be of a little help. So I think that's really the biggest impediment is one that most coaches don't understand, and that is that the model itself needs to be the right model, not an expert model, but a simple helping model. I find that that simple helping model, as somebody's been doing it for a while, they'll often become known for a thing or a particular take on a thing. And then the expert status might grow from that, but it doesn't have to begin with that. That's right. For instance, in my life, I know the nonfiction book proposal really well. So if that comes up in a session, if I have a client who's working on a nonfiction book, I can describe what goes into a nonfiction book proposal in three sentences flat. I have that kind of expertise. But if I'm working with an architect or this or that where I have no idea what their world is really like, then I go back to not knowing. I completely go back to not knowing. And my energy there is to ask, you know, how does that work in your world? Oh, so you have an architecture competition coming up to build a museum in Spain. How does that work? I don't need to know how that works. I can't know how everything works. But to ask them how it works that's actually a quality question because that forces them to think through what does it mean to enter a competition and, and or to win a competition? What's involved there? They may never have lined up those thoughts or articulated those thoughts themselves. So that not knowing question is actually a very important, useful question. How's that work? How's that work in your world? You know, one of the other hurdles that just came to mind as you're talking through all this, I was thinking back as I set up my business 20 some years ago. I was very happy being an employee. I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. 
And when I first started my coaching business, I quickly discovered I had been very okay and very comfortable and actually very good at selling other people's stuff. I'd been doing that since I was a little girl winning competitions for selling the most Girl Scout cookies. And so I could sell other people's stuff. But when it came to selling my own stuff, it was a very different ball game. And that one kind of threw me for a loop. I think that might go back to that first one you mentioned, difficulty in asking for what they want. Do you yeah. find those to be this kind of the same type of thing related? Absolutely. Most new coaches have problems around asking and have always found it much easier to provide services for somebody else or helping somebody else than for themselves. And so there's an existential bit to this, and that is that folks need to be reminded, new coaches, everybody needs to be reminded that they matter and that their efforts matter. And that sort of should go without saying, and yet it has to be said because I think that existential component in working with clients about their life purposes and how to make meaning in life and how to matter, all of that often goes unsaid. And so we're not talking about the right things necessarily. We go to some micro place or some niche place before we get the most important things on the table. For me, I'm always talking with clients about the paradigm shift from the idea of a purpose to life to the idea of multiple life purposes, that many things are important to us. And that contextualizes the thing we're talking about better than if we hadn't brought that up. And then the other important paradigm shift that I try to communicate with clients is that the thousand-year-old idea of seeking meaning is a tired and outworn idea. And now we need to move to the idea of making meaning, that there's nothing out there to look for. Stop looking, stay put, make your own meaning. And one of the things that make your own meaning might mean is opening your practice, creating your signature product, all of those things that coaches do. But now in the context of living a meaningful life, in the context of making meaning in a daily way. I love that distinction and those paradigm shifts. Earlier, you mentioned when you were talking about one of those foundational, those psychological hurdles that we experience, you talked about not feeling equipped and ready and that imposter syndrome. That is something that I see with the new coaches we've been working with for 19, 20 years. It really takes a hold on people and it blindsides them almost. How do you see it manifesting? What are some other ways you see it manifesting among new coaches? Well, the number one way, I'm not sure what the statistic is, but 90 or 95% of folks who train to be coaches never see a client. They don't even try to start a practice. So that's the number one way it manifests is by never starting that practice. They're a little scared of sitting across from another human being, whether it's imposter syndrome or they don't want pushback, they don't want criticism, they don't want to really deal with another human being. They love the training, but now, oh my God, real human beings might be coming into the office. So that's the main hurdle is being willing to sit across from another human being, not taking responsibility for that person, but being there, authentically being there for whatever your time frame is, 45 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it is, to be there authentically. So that is the real hurdle, whether it's imposter syndrome or a whole combination of psychological challenges. This, the core challenge is being willing to sit across from another human being and being present for that amount of minutes. Yeah, just remembering those inherent coaching skills, being present, listening, getting curious, asking questions. Like I love that you've said this several times. This isn't coaching isn't about taking responsibility for somebody else. And I think a lot of newer coaches forget that and they're like, oh, my gosh, the person I might be talking to, they may not get results. Can I help them get outcomes? And yep. they forget that. And in that moment, that's what's happening. They're taking responsibility. 
Yeah, and let me piggyback on that because in working with creative folks especially, but working with anybody, I try to help folks make the distinction between process and progress and try to relax around the word progress. Forget about making progress. If you actually engage in process, you will make progress. So let go of the progress bit. Stop attaching to outcomes and truly engage in process. And that goes in one ear and out the other. Oh, yes, of course, I engage in process. But most people don't like process because process comes with mistakes and messes. Process means spending two years on a novel that never works. That's the reality of process. Three of your seven books you write may not work. Who wants to hear that? But that's the reality of process. I have to say these things to my creative clients and to all to new coaches, to everybody. If you're going to wait for a guarantee that what you're about to do will work perfectly or will work at all, forget about it. You're not going to get that guarantee. That guarantee is not coming. So you're going to have to engage in process and let go of the idea of progress. The idea of progress is built into the American character. It was the main metaphor of the 19th century. Transcendental philosophers used that word all the time. Americans were supposed to make progress. Their image was the image of the upward spiral, always going up, always doing more. We have that really built into our, our psyche and our system. So it takes some talking and some work to help clients understand that progress is not the right measure. That's why I did a book called The Power of Daily Practice. Just the idea of doing something every day, you're bound to make progress. But if you don't have a practice, you're likely to make no progress. Love that distinction, just letting that land, because I think, like you said, it goes in one ear and out the other because folks are so attached to outcomes. I find that when fear is driving the ship, attached to outcomes, and then we forget everything, the fundamentals of what we know. But when we're not in that survival state of our brain, when we're not letting fear control everything, we can be grounded in these truths and navigate things so much easier. Why do you think it's so hard for anybody stepping out of their comfort zone? Why is it so hard for people to remember those fundamentals? Something about their third grade teacher or their mother. <laughs> Something about somebody saying uh, you drew outside the lines. So many things go on in our culture, in our families, in our society that ruin our imagination. We're supposed to draw inside the lines so we and not make mistakes and messes. And we're supposed to know what's on the test, not have big ideas. So there's a lot culturally that cause us to get to that place of not feeling free to make mistakes and messes. If you look at the history of really creative people, they don't blink an eye after a huge mistake. They spend two years writing a symphony that doesn't work. They move on to Symphony 7. They move on to Symphony 8. Entrepreneurs, inventors, app developers, everybody who makes it makes big mistakes as part of what they do. But the vast majority of people do not like that. They really can't tolerate that in their system or in their worldview that they're going to make real mistakes and real messes, that they're going to cost themselves a year doing the wrong thing, or that their signature offering turns out not to be of interest to people, and so they need another signature offering, etc. Most people are not comfortable with this. As soon as they hear about it, they get a little more comfortable. Just the kind of conversation we're having helps them get a little more comfortable, but not all the way to comfortable. The only way to get all the way to comfortable is to take new risks, new courage, Put on your suit of armor or whatever it is, your Batman costume, whatever it is, be a warrior, et cetera, et cetera. We have lots of metaphors for what's required. But the one thing that's required is courage. It takes courage to engage in process. Now, how can new coaches, new entrepreneurs, how can they equip themselves 
to navigate this emotional landscape. I know one of the things when we open enrollments to our program for coaches twice a year, one of the first things that I say repeatedly is owning your own business is really just the playground you've selected for your own self-help journey, discovery, evolution as a human being. So get ready. Here we go. And how would you recommend that new coaches equip themselves to navigate this emotional landscape without getting paralyzed or getting overwhelmed? Well, there are many approaches, of course. Let me just name one. One is you form a strong intention. Namely, I want a coaching practice. Let's say that's the intention. So you form a strong intention. You actually mean it. And so far as you can claim to mean something, you mean it. I want a coaching practice. Maybe you put that up in big font all over the house or on your computer screen or on the refrigerator, or you train your kids to say it every time they see you. You want to practice whatever it is, whatever your methodology is. Then there are two things to do. Very simple to say, you align your thoughts with that intention and you align your actions with that intention. And so I try to help clients all the time get this idea of only thinking thoughts that serve them, sort of the cognitive component of coaching. And I say it that way because there are lots of true thoughts that don't serve a person. It's a true thought that there are a lot of coaches out there. If that's what you're thinking, that's not a thought that's serving you. That's a thought that's going to half paralyze you or that's going to prevent you from getting started. Wow, there are so many coaches out there. Where do I have a chance? Blah, blah, blah. So even though that's a true thought that there are a lot of coaches out there, that isn't a thought that serves you and it needs to be disputed. Not on the level of veracity, not on its truthfulness because it's true, but on the level of not serving me. If the thought is a lot of coaches out there, the next thought has to be, wow, that thought is not serving me. And then the third step is to have some kind of global affirmation or some piece of good cognition that you know to introduce there that becomes habitual to say to yourself, like, I want this, or I'm ready, or whatever, whatever the set of words are. Let's call that A, the cognitive bit where you only think thoughts that serve you. And then B, you need to describe carefully what the actions are you mean to take. And as you know, starting a practice, doing anything has a lot of moving parts. Nothing has few moving parts anymore. In a daily way, we need sort of the global to-do list, but we need the daily to-do list, which is really do some copy for my website, really create that ask email, do A, do B, do C, etc. Do those actions. What I'm talking about is the way in which coaches might want to work with their clients, namely very simple model of inviting clients to form an intention, align their thoughts, and align their actions. It's a very simple model. Kind of can't beat it because it hits all the high spots, but coaches themselves need to know to do this, to, to whatever the intention is, if the intention is to ask that person, then the thought that aligns with that is just a person, not a big deal, just a human being, not scared of criticism, I'm not scared of rejection, I'm not scared of silence, not scared of any of those things. Put it on your to-do list and actually do it. All simple to say, just needs practice, and that's why I keep <laughs> reminding clients that if they try to institute a practice and skip two or three or four days, they will discover that months and years go by before they do X. They're trying to work on their novel, and they skip four days on their novel. Six months will go by. They won't even know where those six months went. So you may have a good reason to miss a day. The problem is when you miss two days or three days, the whole idea of building your coaching practice kind of vanishes, and you get caught up in all the other things that we could get caught up in nowadays. I want to make it clear to new coaches or anybody, clients, how tricky we are, what a tricky species we are. It's easy to say, align your thoughts or only think thoughts that serve you, but Let's say the thought is, I'm tired or I'm busy. Those are the two most common ways in which people don't get their work done nowadays. Those are their messages to themselves. 
And because there are enough grains of truth in those messages, people are getting tired and people are busy, they're off the hook. So you have to realize that when you say, I'm tired, maybe you are tired and maybe you need a rest, but maybe you're talking yourself out of doing the hard thing that was next on your to-do list. We have to understand our own trickiness and the ways in which we're trying to make sure that we don't do the things that we secretly don't want to do. And so we have to append a big but, if you prefer an and or a but, but I'm tired, but I can work on my novel for half an hour, or I am busy, but I'm going to carve out 20 minutes now to work on my website copy. You can't just let the I'm busy or I'm tired or those characteristic thoughts just sit there or else we won't get our work done. Would you be open to sharing a client story that captures some of the unique challenges and triumphs that newer coaches faces that we've been talking about today? One that comes to mind, I have a client who is doing important work in the world of sex. She's working with sex workers and couples who have not had sex in a long time, and sort of her brand is back to sex. But you may know that the climate is becoming more and more difficult. All of the social media are becoming more censoring of those sorts of things. And many of her outlets for her marketing, I forget if it's Instagram or Facebook, I forget the details in the split second, have shut her down. So whatever a coach does, it has to happen in the real world of culture and society and what have you. So she's had to pivot. And maybe this is the point of the thing I'm bringing up. Coaches often have to pivot from the thing that they wanted to invest in because it mattered to them or because they knew it a lot. It's their true subject matter. But they may have to pivot because maybe something like this, that the world no longer permits it, or it's not working. They thought that there were a lot of people who might want X, and it turns out there aren't that many people who want X. And again, this is about process. This pivoting, you can't get locked into some idea of this is what I stand for, or this is the only thing I'm going to present in the world. I have to help a client understand that they can't get attached like that. It makes no sense to believe that there's only one program for you to deliver or only one subject that's going to be important to you. So I'm not sure if that's precisely a success story, except that she did have lots of other things in her arsenal, shamanic stuff and this and that, places to turn where she didn't have to stay in a market that looked to be closing to her and she had other places to go. And maybe that's my headline for that story is to have enough ideas, enough programs, enough offerings that if something isn't working, that doesn't become a catastrophe. That's just a necessity to pivot. Now, let's talk about perfectionism for a second, holding high standards. That's another thing that we see newer coaches struggling with. And I'm a recovering perfectionist, so this is in the early days of my business, this is where I operated from. Now, I quickly learned a very powerful distinction between perfectionism and holding high standards. And so I've not let go of my high standards, but I found that perfectionism existed when fear was running the show. But I still hold those high standards, but a lot of new coaches struggle with perfectionism because of that place of fear or whatever adjective, whatever description that is. What's your take on on that? Let me divide that in half. First is the high standards part. I don't think it's high standards so much as the wrong standards. If the standards are around expertise, those are just the wrong standards. So you're going to get stuck with standards you can't meet. It's more wrong standards than high standards. So you can, to piggyback on what you were saying, we should have high standards, but they have to be the right standards, not just high, but the right standards. 
And it's a high standard to be of some help. That's a very high standard as opposed to being of the opposite of help, to being of some harm or to be of no use. Being of some help is a high standard. So that's A, wrong standards versus high standards. B, I always reframe perfectionism as an anxiety state because I find that that becomes easier to work with or think about once it's framed as an anxiety state, which I believe it is. I believe it's a certain kind of low-grade anxiety, whether you call fear or worry or doubt or whatever, but I think it's helpful to name it as anxiety because then I can talk with clients about their anxiety management strategies. Do they have any? I have lots of anxiety management strategies to offer, but what I kind of demand of clients is that they own one or two anxiety management strategies that actually work for them. I love the perspective, just putting it in perspective and relabeling it, reframing it from perfectionism, which can be, in my case, it was debilitating. Like I knew I was doing it, but I wasn't able to do anything about it. But the reframe, it's like, oh yeah, it's anxiety. I can do something with that. So I love the reframe. I'm sitting here wishing, how come I didn't find you 20 years ago? (laughs) Hopefully our listeners will find it helpful. Now, with coaches, they're making their journey, stepping out of their comfort zone. What other counsel or guidance or insight could you offer just to help them anchor into themselves during these early stages as they're stepping out and starting their business? Any other insights to share? Well, this is also an anxiety management strategy, but it connects here. It's the idea of disidentification, which is very much like detachment in Buddhism, but it's its own flavor. It's an idea out of a branch of psychology called psychosynthesis, which was founded by an Italian psychologist named Sagioli. It's a very simple idea, and it's the idea that you are not your temporal states, you are not your actions, you are not the things that happen. You remain perfect, beautiful, wonderful, excellent Even if the coaching session was rubbish, you're still fine. Even if you made some mistake in the session, you're still fine. Even if the write-up on your website turns out to be dullish dishwater, you're still fine. You want to stay okay. And that's the biggest thing that I think human beings, but new coaches need to remember is that I will make mistakes Things will happen that I'm not proud of. I'll disappoint myself. I'm still okay. I'm just pausing for effect because it's very hard for people to stay okay if they make mistakes or if they get pushback or criticism or this or that. They take it in too deeply to a place of, I'm not okay. Look, this is proof I'm not okay. Boy, that criticism was right on. They nailed me. They got right to my core of not okayness. So that's the main remembrance that a human being dash coach needs to remind herself of, and that is that we remain okay, even though many of the things we do are not particularly beautiful or wonderful or okay. One of the things that I loved about this whole conversation and dialogue today is everything that we've shared that coaches can use as they're embarking on their journey, setting up their business, working with their clients. You mentioned it earlier even, that all of these things are also great for us to use with our clients to help them on their journeys. And sometimes it's easier for us to be able to do that in service of others while we also remember to do it for ourselves. So I just want to summarize some of the things that we've talked about today because it has been a fascinating conversation into this topic. And we kicked off talking about some of those foundational psychological hurdles that are going to occur. You navigated us through some of those that are common so that we can have a heads up 
so that we're not in reactionary mode, but we are in a very mindful state. And you also gave us a couple of other amazing paradigm shifts that we can look at to help us navigate our journey. We dove into the imposter syndrome and gave us a great distinction between process versus progress. And you gave us some great insights on how we can equip ourselves to navigate this emotional landscape that we're experiencing. Talking about the alignment, alignment of intentions and thoughts, alignment of our actions with the intentions, and then having that global affirmation. We talked about sometimes we have to be able to pivot. You gave us that great client story where sometimes it's not the thing that we set out and started with. We can't be attached to that. But when we can be open, we can pivot. Sometimes it's, as one of my friends says, it's the thing that leads to the thing that takes us on our journey. And you talked about having enough in your arsenal. And we even got into the distinction between perfectionism and high standards. And I love that entire conversation. And it has been so fascinating navigating this conversation with you. Eric, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Well, I'm not sure it's parting words. What just was popping into my mind was the trouble that new coaches, really all coaches, but the trouble that new coaches have between trying to decide if they're going to be a generalist or if they need some signature offering or some niche. And that's a stumbling block for a lot of coaches. And so they don't get started because they're not sure if they should be just presenting themselves as a coach to everybody or if they should be presenting themselves as a coach to some particular audience. I think the answer there is sort of like what we've been talking about in other areas of the conversation. You have to make choices. You have to take actions. If the choice is to do both, then you put yourself out as a generalist, but you also announce your workshop for your specialty group. You do both things, or you choose between one or the other and see which works better, but you don't want to get stuck there. There are so many places of potential stuckness in a new coach's life. And this is one of those places of stuckness of not knowing whether to be a generalist or a specialist. You have to make a choice and see what happens. This is another place of process over knowing. You just have to involve yourself in the process without knowing what's going to work and see what transpires. I love it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches. And also a big thank you to Eric for this incredible conversation. You can find out more about him at ericmizel.com. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, Mizell, M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Eric, thank you so much for coming to the show. Great being with you, Melinda. Thanks a lot. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Mayor CFM Podcast Network, which also includes such shows as Blowing Up and Making It. Mishi Lance produced this episode. I wrote this episode together with her, and Cynthia Lamb is our supervising producer. Danny Inney is our executive producer. To catch the great episodes on Just Between Coaches, please follow us on Mirror CFM's YouTube channel or your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a starred review or a comment. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thank you and see you next time. Miracy. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself 
a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy folk or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators. Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible. And it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud, we can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.